This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be speaking with leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is Lulu Little, the founder of Sewn. In the late 90s, driven by a love of craft, Lulu took a road trip throughout Britain to meet artisans and makers. For the past 25 years, she's built a business around them, creating a collection of furniture, lighting, and fabric, all made in the UK and beloved by interior designers around the world. I spoke with Lulu about opening a new showroom in New York, why it's difficult to make quality furniture at an affordable price, and why luxury without transparency isn't luxury at all. This podcast is sponsored by Laloy, maker of rugs, pillows, and wall art for the thoughtfully layered home. Laloy's handmade collections are sought after by interior designers for their breadth of designs, skillful craftsmanship, and good weave certification. Explore those collections and more at laloyrugs.com. That's L-O-L-O-I rugs.com. And follow them on Instagram and TikTok at laloyrugs to see the rugs from even more angles. This podcast is also sponsored by BDDW, whose furniture, ceramics, lighting, artwork, and much more are all designed by artist Tyler Hayes and are made entirely from scratch in BDDW's Pennsylvania studios. You can find Tyler's work in their New York, Los Angeles, and London showrooms, but everything from BDDW classics to Tyler's latest prototypes are also available in online auctions held about once a month. To register and to stay updated on the next auction, visit bddwauctions.com. And now, on with the show. So I'm eager to tell people about Sewn, and it feels impossible to tell the story without sharing your childhood, your early years and, and interests, and how that led to all that you've built. So what's a good place to start there, do you think, Lulu? Goodness, I think with hindsight, it was always inevitable I'd end up working in design of some sort. And in fact, when we were um, clearing the attics of my parents' house, we came across my school reports, which were not palatable reading. Oh, dear. (laughs) But interestingly, um, we did find um, a test I did suggesting the areas that would suit you based on your various um, aptitude and personality tests and and the jobs that really you should steer well clear of. And interestingly, my top two um, motivators were um, (laughs) arts and commercial viability, which was absolutely extraordinary. They were definitely not suggesting rocket scientist or anything <laughs> terrible as I might have liked to think. Well, but so so history was always of of interest and fascination and, and later you went on to to, to study Egypt in, in great lengths and, and and went to work in the in the antiques field. Tell me how all of that evolved. Yeah, history was undoubtedly always my favourite subject, um, and particularly ancient history, actually. Mm. Um, So after university, I worked for um, Christopher Howe, the antique dealer, and just seeing how they did things, their approach to very sensitive restoration, their approach to materials, which informs much of what we do at Sone, and 
also, I think, teaching me an appreciation of how doing things properly takes time. And initially, I was slightly amazed when you'd go and meet the one restorer in the UK of French toolware. And he would say, well, I, I'll hope to have this done by October. And you'd say, well, it's it's February. Surely it can't take that long. <laughs> and actually, I did understand over time that that those things do take that long. And I think that's something that we have lost increasingly and we're all in danger of being impatient at every turn, be it in a restaurant waiting for food to appear or waiting for things that we've ordered online to arrive. And certainly it's one of the big challenges in our industry about making people really understand why good things are worth waiting for. Indeed. So you were you were working for the antiques dealer, you were learning about restoration and going around and, and seeing all of these these different manufacturers and restorers and and tell me tell me when the idea came to you at a very young age, we should point out, uh, to, to go off and just say, Oh, I, I think I'm gonna create a business around trying to to maintain all of this craft. Well, that was definitely the naivety of youth. <laughs> um, I think I am um, overwhelmingly optimistic and I really did feel that there was a viable business to be built based on making things, drawing on the skills of different craftspeople across the UK really properly, um, despite many, many words of warning from people I really respect who just said, it's a, a really charming idea, but it is not viable. And it's sort of worth remembering that now we are fed a daily diet of chat about carbon emissions, supply chains, transparency. None of those words were used at any point when I was first working in the 90s. And there has been such a profound shift. So it did, I understand with hindsight, feel a very, very strange decision to be building a business based on manufacturing in the UK when everybody else had spent the last 20 years offshoring. What we were doing was definitely um, very counterintuitive at the time, although I'm happy to see that now it is a much more common business model. And you're seeing that in America. Yes. At the time when you were starting the business, what were the objections or the concerns that people were raising to you and why they didn't think it was going to work? There were a few, but I think primarily it was cost. People said, why on earth would people mm. pay the prices that you will need to charge when they can get something well-made for a fraction of the cost elsewhere? Well, and, and, we, and we should tell people, you're literally driving around the English countryside, knocking on doors and, and saying, hello, I, I understand you restore British made saddles or or that you uh, or or that you work in cabinetry or or woodworking or, or leather i mean a whole range of things and what were you saying to them i'm i'm putting together a company and we're we're going to protect and preserve english manufacturing i don't know if i was as explicit as um protect but i think um I was saying we really want to work only with British makers. And of course, everybody I met was incredibly friendly. I suspect they all thought I was madly naive, <laughs> but they were nice enough not to say so. And um, on all those journeys, I split the country up into to areas and each week I would go in a different direction. And, and it was like a, a sort of wine map of where I'd be going. And I'd set off with that photocopied map. 
of course, lots were cul-de-sacs and led nowhere once I got to meet them because <laughs> right. we, we wanted them to be making um, sewn designs. So not only designs that I was then doing with a man called Peter Twining, who was a great mentor to me and the biggest influence in my working life, but also mm. um, designs, antiques of Christopher Hodsall, who I founded Sewn with. Um, and he in turn had inherited some designs from Jeffrey Benison, which we were still making. So there was a mix of new and old design. And many makers only want to make their own design, designs quite understandably. So those that I might have found that were, had the perfect skill would suggest that they weren't the right people. But they always said, however, you should meet Dennis Scully because he is the man for you for this job. And and as I went around the country, actually, I met more people ultimately through recommendations than through the initial list. So people made introductions and, and suddenly you, you found all sorts of people. So you, you had this notion, though, of, of making your own, your own designs, that Sewn was going to have uh, the, these, these products that, that you would figure out how to have made. And, and many of them were based on earlier antiques or, uh, right, if, if I recall. Exactly. Yeah. And and so it was a it was a question of could you build this network of all of these different uh, and I don't want just call them manufacturers sounds misleading as if it's some giant facility when often it was little tiny workshops and 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 even in some cases people's homes uh, that that this was being made. Yes, in, in many cases people's homes, and it, it always amazes me when I look at the figures released by the Craft Council and the government every year to see just what a huge contributor to GDP our craft sector is. And craft really is a very narrow sector. This is not about mass manufacturing of furniture. And of all those work um, craftsmen, 75% are self-employed. So they really believe in what they're doing. They're not getting paid holiday. They're not getting sick pay. There is no support. There's no infrastructure for them, really. And yet they are still determinedly working crazy hours to do what they love best. And so I saw our role really as taking their skill to market. And then from that came these very close bonds. And many of the workshops that we still work with 26 years on are, are workshops I found in that first year. It seems as if one of the challenges early on was that you were somewhat racing against time because some of these people were, as you suggested earlier, were perhaps the only person doing this particular thing, and they might not be not be moving forward with the, with the business. And, and so part of what you needed to race to, to do was to preserve what was what was being made. Yes, you're absolutely right. And yet it's much easier to acknowledge that with hindsight, because <laughs> at the time, um, I was always quite cautious, we only ever grew out of earned funds. We had one very small loan of £30,000 to start the business. And we were profitable from year one, but it was slow and steady. And it is that growth paradox. It was slow and steady, really, for about 20 years. And then suddenly that rather magical moment came where we, we did accelerate. And it is very um, easy to forget the enormous worry that goes with running a small business. Um, and a couple of, of very significant moments in terms of um, global change and recessions that, that hit us undoubtedly, but that we did manage to navigate them because we'd kept cash in the bank and we'd always been very cautious. 
So in the beginning, you were saying that you were just coming over to the States or you were traveling to other parts of Europe, suggesting, introducing yourself and your company. And I assume you were, you were meeting with some big American interior designers of the day. Do, do, any, do any stand out as, as people that became customers for you and, and, have, and have worked with you for a while? Oh, absolutely. I think of our first 10 orders, three came from American decorators. And this is this is when we were tiny and when we didn't even have a printed catalogue. I was travelling with a portfolio. Um, <laughs> so our first order came from Thierry Despont, ah, who okay. very, very sadly died this summer. May he rest in peace, indeed. Yeah. I mean, he was one of my design heroes. I absolutely adored his work and I couldn't quite believe my eyes when I saw the order coming through. Remember, this was pre-email. So it was coming through <laughs> upside down on a fax machine. And I was bending my do- head like a dog to watch it slowly come out. And, um, that beautiful letterhead of his. And then the order came and it was for the, for the first Ralph Lauren store in London. And so what was he ordering? What, were, what, were, what was he having made? Tables, chairs, stools, bonquettes, lighting. Oh, my goodness. Fantastic. Yeah, it was absolutely thrilling. And then we, we worked with them um, from that moment on, um, John Saladino was really marvellous from from the very beginning as well. So we were lucky. David was a fantastic early client. Victoria Hagen. Um, there were a few that really stand out and that we've worked with for a very long time. And and those relationships do endure. The fantastic um, Douglas Durkin, who I first met in San Francisco. You know these these clients become friends, and you feel very grateful for their long, long-term support. You said earlier, slogging away for 20 years, and then there was a moment where the, where the business seemed to, seemed to really take off. What, what was the trigger there? Do you remember? I think it was bringing manufacturing in-house. I think that if the Rattan workshop that we had been um, working with, they were making our designs for many years, hadn't gone into administration, things would be very different now. At the time, it was, it was terrible news to receive. They phoned me on, on Christmas Eve to tell me that they'd, they'd folded the business and laid everybody off. And it felt like the most terrible thing I could have heard. But actually, with hindsight, it changed the direction of Sohn and forced us to bring the manufacturing in-house. And we knew we very quickly had to set up an apprenticeship scheme because there were just two people still weaving traditionally in the UK. And once they'd gone, there was no hope of these skills ever being revived. I think it's very easy to, to overlook the fact that so much making knowledge is tacit and that these very modest, highly skilled craftspeople who've often been doing what they do since they were teenagers are not aware of the importance or value of their skills. They can teach, but there's no way they could write a manual explaining step by step how to do what they right. do. So I, yeah. I was aware that there was a ticking time bomb and I had to find people for them to train taking the pressure off. And we were lucky that our first ever apprentice is still with us 11 years on. Is that right? Yeah, and, and now training lots of people himself. Well, it, it, it's an extraordinary story. And and we should, just to clarify for, for, for listeners, so this was, a, this was a, a, one of the primary vendors for you and you didn't have any idea 
that they were planning to close up shop. If I if I recall, they had, they had orders for you, and they were calling in part to tell you they were not going to be able to fulfill them. They 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 chose Christmas Eve for reasons I I still can't wrap my head around <laughs> to call you and tell you they were basically going out of business. Yeah, they'd actually gone out. I mean, they'd handed the keys over to the administrators, and and it was it was a really um, extraordinary moment. Um, and then I had to cajole the receivers to put me in touch with the two makers. They said we can't give their phone numbers for obvious data protection reasons. So it ended up with us having a sort of blind date meeting in a pub in Leicester set up by the administrator and me. By the administrators to, to arrange a meeting for you at a pub. Yeah. And then he said, I can't give either of you each other's number, but I can suggest a meeting. And if either of you does or doesn't turn up, so be it. So I got the train to Leicester and wondered if I was going to be walking into a a sports bar alone, but no, two of these great weavers, Mick and Phil, were sitting there waiting for me. Um, they were slightly nervous. It was an elaborate hoax, having, of course, just come to terms with the fact that they'd lost their jobs in their mid-50s, having both worked there since they were 15. And from that moment, they were fantastic and guided us in in establishing a new workshop. So you, so you take this business in-house, never your plan, and right, yeah. and suddenly, <laughs> and 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 suddenly, you you are you, you are really running this operation, and this actually propels you uh, f- forward in, in a way that you couldn't have anticipated. It sounds like yes, definitely. And from that moment on, I mean, you know, there were two things. A, we were very nervous. We suddenly had quite a few more people on the payroll, more obligations in terms of um, workshops, overheads. Hmm. And so we really needed to make it work. So then we started to look at all the accompanying crafts that needed to go with the with the rattan weaving to enable us to be in full control of the, the whole process from the prototyping right through to the selling. So then that quickly demanded for rattan lighting, um, metalwork, patination, electrification, all the different skills that enabled us to have full control over the lead times, which are so crucial to what we do. It was a massive learning curve. And and again, I take no credit for that. That was my colleagues who just took it upon themselves to really learn how, how we did this and, and to do it properly. And so very quickly, we had a much bigger workforce in Leicester than we'd ever imagined. And, and that really was that watershed moment because it enabled us to prototype far more than we ever could have dreamt possible with a third-party workshop um, and actually forced us to, to do more new designs because we knew we had to keep them busy. So that was that was exciting. I mean, I was thrilled to be able to just sit down quietly and come up, especially with the lighting, because no one was doing rattan lighting. It was a huge um, and very enjoyable learning curve for me because for the first time, spending so much time in workshops and seeing how the craftsmen work, I saw very clearly firsthand how a material informs a design, that relationship between a craftsperson and their material, and that really it has to be about the material first and foremost. And so my um, huge respect for rat as a material, I I would call it a love affair, (laughs) only developed because I just saw all the things that this wonder material were capable of. Did taking over that business lead to bringing other businesses into the fold, or or tell me how the mechanics really of the of the sewn operation 
works today? Well, I think it did give us the confidence to know that it was possible and that we could mm. step in where we saw that businesses were vulnerable. Many of these people are nervous, rightly, of taking on bigger workshops and taking on fixed costs such as salaries. And so mm. um, we have been over the last few years actually putting apprentices in place in other people's workshops, which takes the risk away from them. And actually, of course, takes the risk away for us because if we know there's a backup when this person might retire, that's obviously in our interest too. So this isn't selfless work. This is this is just very pragmatic approach to a longer term future. And I think it's very important that we have a backup for every single skill, that we are never left in a position where if one workshop were to burn down or to unexpectedly retire, that we would be left in the lurch because ultimately that would impact our clients. And that's something we'd never want to risk. With this broad array of capabilities that you now can bring to market, what did you find there was the most demand for? Or what, what resonated most with people when they learned of all of the different things that you could make for them? What did they, what did they really want? It's very hard to answer that because it really is different things in different areas. Um, upholstery is always a challenge, as you've already touched on. And mm. we have just taken on an upholstery workshop. Um, someone we've been working with for 20 years who very kindly gave us two years warning that he wanted to retire. And we have now just taken over the business. But he is... Really? Yes, which is, is, is really um, a very, very positive step. And so we now have just taken on an apprentice there. And the plan is to take on two more next year. So that workshop will have more than doubled in scale by the time he has, has fully retired. Um, and we're hoping he'll miss us so much he'll want to come back. But <laughs> Well, and it sounds like so many of the people that you've worked with do just that, it's right? They, they do come I can't say that it's all just because they're missing us. <laughs> but um, yes, I think it's a model we are going to be doing more and more of. We are in discussions with a few other workshops who would like to plan their retirement, even some, you know, as far as five years out. And I hope that we can give them the confidence to know that they can take on apprentices, which we desperately need them to do, whilst knowing that their legacy will be safe with Sone, that we're not going to be then just selling workshops or closing them. And we, we have a very long-term view to keeping them going, because ultimately we would have no business if it were not for them. They are the makers. And so they really are the, the, sort of the heroes of all of this. We're taking a quick break from the show to remind you to register for BDDW auctions. You can look back at puzzle paintings, XXX ceramics, and prototype designs that were featured in recent auctions, and also stay updated on the next one by registering at bddwauctions.com. And now, back to the show. I wonder what you feel you've you've learned through this process what has what has helped you the, the most as you've as you've grown this this business that's very easy to answer um what i've learned is surround yourself by really really good people um so fantastic chief executive who's been with us for over 15 years um lucy who just knows exactly what to do at the right moment our CFO, Aaron, our head of manufacturing, um, the list goes on. We have a really good 
executive team that meets regularly. And that's the truth is that everybody will take on what they know they're best at. So delegation is an art I have certainly perfected. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and did you end up, so in the beginning, it was all self-funding and, and by your own growth. As all of this has scaled, have you, have you brought in financial partners? Has private equity been knocking at the door? No, I, I've always been very um, rigorous, actually, about separating any outside influences. So we've taken on, we had an initial loan of £30,000. We took on another loan in 2007. These are bank loans mm. to expand in the Pimlico Road to take on the second showroom next door. And very small loans to do other uh, short-term projects. Um, but from that moment on, it's all been self-funding. We, we do have three outside investors who have a, a small stake in the business. And they were all clients, um, which is very important because I would never, ever want to take on private equity money. Because um, I think that the moment that any um, business of this sort is in the hands of people who are demanding a quick return, you're in real trouble. And um, we have a lot of um, principles that we would not consider overturning. And they just don't sit well with the private equity model. So um, it will always be a family business. We have very big plans and big ambitions for the business. And... Um, there's, there's no way that a, an outside investor wanting a quick return would be comfortable with the risks that we're taking in terms of expanding manufacturing. And there are risks we do feel comfortable with because we really believe in it. And, and so what are, your, what are your big plans, Lulu? <laughs> Dennis, the big <laughs> plans, other than um, more whippets, are relating <laughs> to building um, a village of makers. We call it a sort of working title is a maker's village. Um, and it will be a community of makers in Leicestershire where we already have our, our manufacturing hub. And it's about bringing more skills into um, a, a community of connected buildings with shared machinery, shared infrastructure, shared knowledge so that they can all work together. It's all about the cross collaboration, which Sone is best known for. So one piece might require the involvement of an engineer, a blacksmith, a saddler, and a rattan weaver, for example. And if they're all together on one site, they can talk through the nuances of each design as they're developing it. We very much leave it to them. They are the experts. And we found that even where we've created little what we call our, our working triangles around the country. So we have one in Dorset, we have one in um, Essex and Suffolk, where they, the craftspeople, all speak to each other in the process of development. Um, we're obviously involved, but they are the ones who are going to be actually making it. So we're guided by them. And I think that um, the more we can do to bring more manufacturing together, not ever losing those other triangles. We want to keep those going, but we'd like to really expand the Leicester hub and bring in more skills. And so that that will probably be the next 10 years of full-time work for me and actually many of the team. And and what are the biggest obstacles to, to, to making the Maker's Village happen? Are there are there zoning issues? Is it is it I mean Yes. I mean we're not we're not property developers ultimately. Yeah. Um and so um we're looking at two sites quite seriously at the moment and um, both you know have great potential 
And then there are all sorts of practicalities. Yes, we need to get planning permission. We need to work out how we're going to fund it. Um, we've already been approached by people who've heard about it and want to be on site with us. Workshops we don't even know, but are in the sort of top end craft space. That's really exciting that people have got yes, I'm sure. and want to be part of it because we will need to be, whilst we'll have our own work, um, craftspeople there, we will be renting spaces to others. And we want to make it a, a really magical place for people to work. Um, you know, I have dreams for a pub and a cricket pitch and others in the <laughs> slightly more practical aspiration. <laughs> I'm focusing, oh, yes, food is a, is a very yes. big one. Um, obviously, in the Leicester community, we have a fantastic Asian community. So I'm very excited about all that we can do in so many areas to expand this this model and hopefully being near water so that we can grow our own willow. Um, yeah, so the, the whole landscaping will come into the equation. Let's talk about you coming to the States and this fantastic New York showroom that I'm hoping to, to make a a, a pied a terre for my for myself uh, in in the in the future, but I know that was a huge undertaking. Although you you had been in New York in a slightly more colorful area, if I re, if I recall, you're absolutely right. We were down in Midtown. We were next to Hooters, which is of course where every reputable brand starts out. Which brings a lovely lunchtime crowd, I'm told. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely um yeah Stader on um on Madison Avenue. <laughs> There were elements were missing. I'll leave it at that, Dennis. Yes. Okay. So you so you moved from next to Hooters to a lovely Madison Avenue building upstairs. And what made you what made you want to be there? What made you choose that versus coming to the D and D building or or to the New York Design Center or someplace else? I think um, the Design Center model we didn't feel was right for various reasons. Um, one of which was that we just wanted to be in total control of how we ran the showroom. And so if we wanted to be there having dinner till four in the morning with candles lit, that was for us to decide. We didn't want to feel guilty that people were having to stay late. This is all about doing things in, in the same way that we can in London, where we we don't have to um, answer to, to other people in that respect. And... We also wanted it to feel very personal, to be an extension of the London showroom. Um, it's actually ended up being far smarter. but um, <laughs> It sets a pretty high bar, the yeah, space put in Madison Avenue. I mean, it's a pretty high bar. Um, <laughs> I think that's the benefit of doing it all in one as opposed to piecemeal over many, many yeah. years. We've been in the London showroom now for over 20 years. So um, I, I think that there has been a great benefit in just going in with builders for six months and, and and really doing it properly from scratch. But it does feel more like a home. And and I think we would have found it very hard to achieve that atmosphere had we been um, in a design center. What were some of the big challenges for you in, in I, I know it took a while even to get that space and then what you what you had to do with it uh, because of the, the state it was, was in, but... Uh, Tell me, tell me a little bit about making all of that happen and the challenges. Well, um, the first challenge was finding the space and Lucy hmm. was, did all of that. I had absolutely nothing to do with it. So I think that was probably easier than we had imagined. And, and then really it was about putting it back to the building it, 
um, should have been. So it's an Atterbury building designed and built in 1899 and it is a really lovely building and it's had a very colourful past, all sorts of fantastic tenants, including Monsieur Marc, who... Oh, yes, the famous hairdresser. The famous hairdresser. You know about him, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. I love that he was a previous tenant. Yeah, he was there for a long yes, time um, <laughs> doing the hair of people like Babe Paley and Nancy Reagan, Betsy Bloomingdale, or really wonderful stories that we've unearthed. So that's all been quite exciting. I think we're the first people in the interiors world to have, have occupied the space. I wonder, what do you want that to be? What do you want that to become? We'd love it to be a hub for creative people to gather and talk about um, very specific expertise. So we're planning a series of events, which include um, a great specialist talking to another specialist about 18th and 19th century English glass, people who hand make paper, really um, anybody who shares our values about making and creativity. Is this UK craft heritage model scalable for you? Can you imagine, I think you've dipped your toe into Scotland and, 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 and maybe Northern Ireland, but I mean, can you, can you imagine bringing this model to, to other places where, where craft is likely dying out in much the same way that it is in, in, in England? It's a really interesting question. And funny you should mention Scotland because actually two of my colleagues are there um, this week, meeting workshops. Oh, okay. So that is really exciting. Um, yes. And actually, that is a big part of what we do is we have people on the road all the time. We have a full-time sustainability role where they're just looking at new materials. So it is something we're constantly investigating. The thought of it ever being outside the UK, I can't really imagine. I mean, <laughs> course i'd love to be doing it in places like greece or egypt but there are a lot experts <laughs> doing it there so i i certainly wouldn't consider that no i think all our focus will be on on the uk and the american market is is even more notorious than others for wanting things quickly and i wonder particularly particularly new yorkers being a born and raised new yorker myself we're we're not used to waiting very long for things that we want and i wonder how you have that conversation with, with the people that come and will no doubt fall in love with what they see in the Madison Avenue space, but, but might not be able to get it as quickly as they would like. I think that um, transparency about our supply chains is what this all comes down to, because when people really do understand that these things are not being made in factories by faceless people whom we don't know, they do have... Um, an understanding of what is going into making their pieces. I think that whenever anybody visits our workshops in Leicestershire, they come away, they all say the same thing. Okay, you've told me this for years, but now I get it. And we see a direct link between then people placing orders because they really understand what goes into every single piece. One rattan weaver might spend up to four hours choosing the materials to make just one chair, all the bales of rattan are together. And he is choosing the perfect, perfect canes every time for that one chair. So if you're factoring in those four hours, and they're the things that make all the difference in how good that chair is, then 
you start to appreciate what true value looks like. And so education is absolutely part of this. And I, I don't want to sound holier than now. And I know that there is a danger that I do when I'm talking about this. And I have to divorce this sort of frustration, I feel, lack of transparency in some big brands and um, our commitment to being fully transparent. So I don't want, it's, it's not about telling them not to do it, but it is about encouraging people to ask questions and really understand what totally honest manufacturing looks like. So when you say lack of transparency with some of the big brands, what what specifically are you referring to? You don't have to name names, but I mean, what, what isn't being shared, I guess? I mean, I'm, I'm nervous to use the word luxury because actually it's such an abused word. But in the space that we are in at the very, very top end, mm. call it whatever you want, um, I do think people have the right to know where their money is going and to know exactly where that piece was made, not just where it was finished or the, the final stages, but every element of the process of making that piece. It's all too easy now with very glossy uh, marketing to give a broad brush, lovely finish to a, a product. But actually, when you dig deep, sometimes it's really, really unpalatable. And I think that if we really want to abide by the values that we're all espousing, which is about treating people properly, paying them fair wages, not mistreating animals, not increasing our carbon emissions, then these thorny subjects have to be discussed because it does constantly astound me that in an age where we are examining, many of us, our colonial pasts more than we ever have, and rightly so, and people are talking very, very angrily about it, at the same time, mm. those same people are ignoring their own workforces and building their wealth on a totally silent workforce that they are not acknowledging. And this is happening across our industry and across the fashion industry. In fact, it's much worse in the fashion industry. And I marvel that more journalists haven't picked up on this and exposed, frankly, the, the total bullshit from some of these big brands. I mean, it's, it's just um, astounding that these people can be such hypocrites about the most important subject of our time. Never, ever have we talked about human rights in the way we are now. And yet these very rights, these people are faceless that are making big brands great fortunes. The two are just don't sit well together. And yet it seems that we can't openly talk about it. The other element of it, and I was, I was watching the recording that was very kindly sent to me of your talk at the VNA. Oh yeah. And it was so interesting to me that I'm I'm guessing it was a young woman who got up to ask a, a question when when it was open to questions and she talked about do you imagine there being a time where these handmade craft made items will will be more readily available or will be more widely affordable and, and and I think that that's one of the knocks sometimes with with our industry is that we seem to be at that at this highly elevated level and we're just making things for the for the top one percent of the one percent and to your point about journalists often when it gets covered in the media 
it, it's made to sound as if an $800 chair is just profligate spending and, and, and what are you doing? Yeah, you're, you're completely right. And I think it's probably the most important question we can be asking. And it's something that we talk about internally all the time. And we don't want to appear tone deaf. And I suspect at times our industry can. We cannot square making things really properly, paying a fair wage and making it cheap. They, they just don't sit together, however much we try. So we have to hope that um, firms like IKEA, who have really impressive record on doing things properly, but making um, in workshops that they control so they can ensure that people are being paid a fair wage and that they are working in good conditions um, and being acknowledged, they are doing it on such a scale that they actually are able to bring things to market at a very inexpensive price. And, and I mm. salute them and, and admire them enormously. My research, um, whilst I was um, putting together the Rattan book, I looked into IKEA a lot because they do Rattan and, and I was really impressed. And I spoke to various people in their sustainability teams and, and it was exciting to discover what they're doing. So you, you can have things well done at certain levels. Of course, they'll be differently done because man hours are very expensive, um, obviously less so in certain markets, but it, it, it does give you hope. Actually, it's often the middle market that is the most worrying. So I think we all need to know that we have to ask questions and be sure of the answers. I mean, I was in a, a very grand furniture shop the other day and I was looking at the it was a bookcase and I asked the, the lady in the shop where it was made and she said very grandly all our pieces are artisan made in Italy and I could tell this piece was not artisan made <laughs> nothing about it and I said to her are you absolutely sure that every single piece in here is artisan made in Italy and she looked away and she said and some are made in China <laughs> and I thought that is just extraordinary. Here you are distinguishing between two craftspeople. Why is that right? That one is acknowledged and one isn't. And don't be ashamed of it. Proudly say we are able to offer this at this price because, and we do look after our workforce and here are videos of the making. But it seems that we have a two-tier system for craftspeople. And I can't imagine who thinks that that's right. But if if I feel worried about that, I think the fashion industry and certain people talking about it feel infinitely more worried because it's happening on a much larger scale. And the challenge in that, and and I've been thinking about this recently because we were talking about the the, the death of a, a fellow in the States who had written a book about the furniture industry in the US going over to Asia. It was a book called Furniture Wars and the author just just recently passed away. And it was that period in the 80s and 90s, and you, and you were alluding to this earlier, when everything was starting to, to go over to the, to the Far East for, and we were bringing the cost down dramatically, and, and I get it. And that's, that's part of, of what all of these free trade agreements and, and all of this open trade was supposed to lead to, was that it was going to dramatically bring prices down. And in and in many areas, of, of course, it has, and 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 it has in, increased people's quality of life in a, in a host of, of areas, and so that is inarguable. But it, but it the the trade off now, as we look deeper into to your point, 
so who who's making this and and what are these factory conditions like and and what wh- what are we what are we learning uh, about the, the, these big operations that are that are going on overseas. You're absolutely right. And I'm not anti-free trade, and I am certainly not pro-protectionism. I think it's damaging, actually. So I think it's really important that craft is supported globally. It's important, as important in every single nation. And that is not what I think we want to see. We do not want to see people taking work away from any of these workshops in Asia, in Africa, in Europe. We don't want to see that. What we want to see is that the makers themselves are acknowledged. It is not it is not asking much, but when you see the huge price tags, mm. you do have to ask questions when you know that it's not being made, where you're being told it's made. And I would find that just as frustrating as if I was buying some organic meat, which actually wasn't organic, and and so the list goes on. But I think that demanding transparency is not too much to expect in a day when we do know exactly how and where things are being made. And it's just, um, it's not a convenient truth, but it is one we have to address. We're taking a quick break from the show to remind you about Laloy. This season, Laloy finds inspiration from interior designers who bring a unique eye to their work, like their collaboration partners, the New York-based design firm Carrier & Company. New handmade Goodweave certified rug designs from Carrier & Company by Laloy are in stock now. Explore them at laloyrugs.com. That's L-O-L-O-I rugs.com. And stay tuned for Laloy's spring launches, which are just around the corner by following at Laloy Rugs on Instagram and TikTok. And now, back to the show. We're always questioning in the U.S. here whether this has become a meaningful priority for the customer base. Do, do, the, do the affluent Americans who can afford to hire an interior designer, who can specify all of these products, are they sufficiently aware and and are they asking the questions are they de- demanding the things that we've just been been talking about the transparency and and do you feel that's the case in the in the UK yes I do um, certainly the younger audience because they've been um, made more aware about this both at school um, and just through friends being a little bit more um, concerned about environmental matters but I still think there is a naivety. People ask questions to a certain point, but almost stop because they they know that the next answer is not one that is going to be palatable. And it's just easier to look away. And I'm guilty of it myself. You know, There are things that I think, oh God, I know I have to stop buying from them. them and I really, really want to keep buying. It's, it's, you know, it's not easy, but I think that is the way that change will be forced. And I, I really look forward to the day that Certain companies start um, investing money in in wonderful videography of of their workshops, other than their very lovely American and, and European ones, but also perhaps acknowledge the source of these pieces and the whole journey of the piece. I don't know when that might be, but it's it's exciting to think that one day somebody might have the guts to do that. Well, as you say, it it takes a lot of guts, and it's and it's also easy to to trip over oneself in in, in all of that, and you. 
you you show part of the operation or you or you show maybe one of your better factories I mean, with some of these big American furniture brands, and and there's a big one that's coming over to the UK and and to Europe, as you as you know, uh, RH, and they have things made all over the world. Some in Italy, some some in Asia, uh, but also uh, I, I think they're they're one that is trying to project an image of of quality that uh, sometimes the 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 origin of of where some of their things are coming from suggests otherwise. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. I can't really begin to get my head around their model, um, which doesn't really <laughs> talk about the actual making process. Um, and well, tell me what you think about that. I mean, tell me what you think about because I mean, RH is is counting on. I mean, they're 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 in England as you know, and and coming to London soon, and they've just opened in Dusseldorf and Munich. Oh, I didn't know they were coming Paris. to London. Yes, they're, yes, they're going to be in in London proper a, a, as well soon. They hope. I mean, I have I have to say I haven't done um, as much research as I should into into all of this, but I um, I do find it very difficult to fathom the model because it is so far removed from from everything that Sohn stands for and I'm very happy to be shown otherwise but if making is about transparency and luxury sorry to use that term again but if if and they call themselves luxury luxury without full transparency just simply is not luxury it is as basic as that surely the most basic luxury is to to have full knowledge so I don't know. It comes down again to whether customers are happy to look away. Well, there's a fantastic show um, actually on in Boston at the moment, the Sargent Exhibition, and it it really highlights this point of um, you know forever textiles and um, objects and carpets have been great um, manifestations of wealth, and this particular Sargent Exhibition, which I, th- I think is then coming to London at some point really focuses on how he used as a portrait painter textiles to project a particular place in society um and 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 wealth and i think that um the idea that textiles were always so prized when you then discover an unpalatable making process it it slightly undermined that and of course that wasn't the case when sergeant was painting so it it really brought it home to me, actually, as did um, the Chanel exhibition at the V&A and her extraordinary success, which I hadn't appreciated um, with um, partnering with certain textile firms. Um, such brilliance in manufacturing at a um, very, very high level, but also with her marketing genius. I mean, that really was um, the perfect combination of quality, true design innovation and vision. Well, that's the thing, and some some companies are stronger at the marketing than they are the, the the other the components, and and that's the that's the challenge. Interestingly, with with textiles, an industry that seems to be undergoing a, a great deal of evolution, digital printing and 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 technology seems to be rushing into that into that market. What do you what do you make of of all of that, and and is that something you can imagine getting into yourself? Yes, it's very interesting. I've definitely been proved wrong on that. Um, I was nervous and felt that that would would be very damaging. But actually, I've seen some very good digital printing, surprisingly good. It does lend itself to um, certain types of printing. You can recreate a certain painterliness that 
actually perhaps screen printing may not allow. And I was more amazed than anyone when I saw some some samples. I mean, nearly all our printing is screen printing, but we are now looking at digital for, for some designs that we're bringing out. And, and it definitely is the right method for a certain look that we're trying to achieve. I don't think it'll ever be a large part or anything like. I suspect it will always be a very small part of our offering, but it does enable you to produce fabrics at a lower price. And, and I think environmentally, obviously, there are advantages to printing digitally. So I think that uh, it is a great example of how technology and old skills can work hand in hand. It's interesting because technology really seems to be coming for our industry in, in from from many different directions. I was I was listening to an interview with with Sam Altman, the briefly deposed and then returned CEO at at OpenAI and he was he was actually talking in an interview about with all of the things that technology will create, he imagines it putting an even greater value or worth on things made by hand and on things made by by craftspeople and 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 I thought that that was so interesting that in his mind, those things will never lose their value. In fact, they'll they'll likely in, increase because there'll be an even greater hunger for things that are that are real. Yeah, I think with the, I totally agree with that. And it, it we shouldn't fear this technology. I think it is probably to be embraced um, for that very reason. And we do as humans crave that um, the, the knowledge that there is a human in the chain of production. And I think that this really highlights that. Can you imagine incorporating artificial intelligence into the into the production process of, of any of the makers that you that you work with now? I mean I couldn't rule it out. I think I'd be a, a huge fool to, to say no. I, I, I don't see now how we would, but I, I think it, it would be mad to, to say that we won't because the, the pace of change is so great. Um, Yes, it's inevitable, I think. Um, I only wish I'd, I'd had access to it to write a few essays. My report was quite so bad. <laughs> those, those earlier report cards that we were referencing might have, might have looked better yeah. if only <laughs> ChatGPT was writing some of those papers. I, I wonder, though, it, it, it's been a crazy, it's been a crazy few years, and, and you mentioned earlier the, the things that grew out of out of COVID. We come out of COVID, and we face this very challenging in, inflationary period that everyone's trying to to, to bring down and and get, and get their arms around. And the UK, in in particular, has has faced a, a range of challenges, multiple. Uh, prime ministers going in and out. You were <clears throat> caught up in a little bit of drama with one of them, and I'm I, I'm I'm sorry about that. But but in that was something that we had been talking about earlier. That often when the prices of some of the things that we are just so used to in our industry get revealed to the general public, it it sounds as if uh, we're all marionettes. Yes. <laughs> I, I, exactly. We're, we're just making things for kings and queens, and and that and that the whole industry is just out of touch with with reality. Well, I I think that um, it is the lack of transparency that gives any credence to those arguments, which is why I find find it so frustrating because um, high price point does not equal well made, 
And so this really comes down to the fundamental question of what does true value look like? And that is what I was so sad the press didn't pick up on around all, all of this discussion is that exceptional craftspeople were being called upon to make things from an important building and they should be celebrated and the value of their work should be appreciated. And I really hope that over time, the two will not become muddied, that people can understand that if you want something to be well-made, using proper materials by people being paid a fair wage, there is an inevitable cost. It really isn't very complicated. And I'm sorry, I know I go on about it and it is very boring, but it shouldn't be boring. It really should be just very straightforward. No, no, and 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 it should be, and and we should explain for listeners in the U.S. who might not have any idea of what what happened. In a, very quickly, Lulu was uh, was doing some some work for for Eleven uh, Downing Street and the, the residents, uh, Boris Johnson at the the time, the the Prime Minister, and uh, and and. Uh, a kerfuffle in the press about again just the the costs of things and 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 it the project went went a bit over budget or the money that had been allocated and and so people had a a bit of a field day and and Lulu unfortunately got uh, a bit more attention uh, she and her family than she would have would have liked or or, or not for the right reasons I, I wish they had been hounding you about uh, about Sone and 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 all of the things that you're doing but uh, they were. They were coming after you for that that expensive gold gold wallpaper, that, which didn't uh, exist. <laughs> yes, which wasn't even a real thing, uh, as it as it turned out. It was out. quite extraordinary. In fact, the the thing that they were keenest to discuss was trends, which was really troubling because trends, by their very nature, um, demand things become quickly obsolete, which goes against everything Sone stands for. So <laughs> I was really troubled to see this whole talk about trends based around things that we hadn't even made for this particular project. So not only was the information totally incorrect, um, my dread, which is get the look, got even more airtime. And I think get the look actually is has a lot to answer for in the, in the damage to our industry, because surely we should be buying with the, the expectation things will still be being used by our great grandchildren. And trends certainly do not allow for that. I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up get the look because I, I did want to have that conversation with you because I know it's a hot button issue of yours. I've got to and, tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it and it's so interesting because we've been talking recently there's a on TikTok and and other social media it's it's referred to as dupes and and finding copies of this and copies of that and they and they refer to them as dupes or duplicates uh, of things uh, that they find for for far less money that are often made overseas or 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 just aren't the same quality level of course but the the get the look phenomena has has been with us th- throughout time uh, but as you say it it it's it, it's anathema to to what you're all about yeah, it's not encouraging innovation. It's encouraging very quick copies, ba- bad copies, poorly made, um, ignoring totally the craftspeople who have invested all their time in developing the original piece. So everything about it from start to finish, I, I find really distressing. And yet people people love to cover it that way. They love to cover Get the Look. Oh, and, and I think you're right. I, I 
sort of despair, but I think it will always go on. But I think you can talk about how things can be done through thrift shops um, and through recovering things. I mean, you know, if you really have to go down the trend route, still have a really well-made sofa that might be made from natural materials that can just be recovered. It doesn't all need to be thrown out. So there are ways of discussing this in a slightly more responsible fashion. But I, I think that we're not seeing much of that. But, but that's what you're going to do, Dennis. That's exactly. That's going to be my mission. <laughs> I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to fight that good fight and, and go down in a blaze of glory doing it. Last thing I want to talk to you about, you mentioned materials. And I'm so curious, one of the areas that you are working on is trying to replace foam. Well, it, it is very exciting. Um, and actually listening to your brilliant podcast with John Sarah Ruth was very, ah. very inspiring. Um, and the work that she and her colleagues are doing um, in this field. But we work with quite a few experts here. Again, I came at this from a very novice angle. But working with various people, we have now managed to take foam out of every single one of our products while still passing all the critical fire safety tests. It's taken a long time, but uh, we have a 100% natural alternative now using natural latex um, and coir and wool. So it does feel like quite a moment. And yes, it's happened much faster than we thought. So I think maybe that emboldens us to take on other materials. This was definitely the one we were most concerned about. So we are very, very happy to be ending the year having achieved that. But we're constantly looking for, for other ways to improve um, not just the materials, but actually just the sourcing. We're very confident in our own supply chains in terms of making because we witness every single product being made here in the UK. What we're less confident of and don't ever want to be tripped up on and need to, to, to learn more about is the raw materials. So, you know, where is our copper coming from? Um, where are our timbers coming from? And more and more we're trying... Um, to really go to source so that we can understand but but it's not easy and we we certainly don't profess to be um to have, to have all the answers but we've set ourselves quite ambitious goals as to when we want to achieve um full transparency so going forward all of the upholstery coming from from sewn won't have foam no i mean historically quite a lot didn't have foam anyway because foam is only required to achieve a certain look so mm. some was already um horsehair um, or um, duck down or various right. other, there were quite seven different types of upholstery we use. The one that we were really worried about was foam, which is really just creating terrible landfill problems. Um, but also the barrier cloth is the other big question. And this comes down to rules around toxicity. Um, we know there are clear links between carcinogens and barrier cloths. And this is where actually government intervention is required, laws do need to be changed because obviously and rightly there are, there are certain um, fire rules. Mm. Um, it doesn't feel well thought out at the moment. And a lot of people have been lobbying for a long time to get these laws changed. Um, but we have, thank goodness, managed to find a way around them for our products, which still um, ensures that we comply with all the legislation without having to use any of these harmful toxins. And that is probably one of the most exciting moments of, of any of the R&D we've done in the history of Zone. That's remarkable. So, so tell me, I mean, as we, as we wrap up, tell me, tell me what you're tackling next in, in, in that area. Well, actually, we're looking at new materials. 
So as opposed to replacing others, that, that was the one that was definitely giving us more sleepless nights than any others. I think it's about now working in, with materials that we're not we're not confident in and we don't um, know much about. And so we're not, but, but need to be the materials of the future. So, I mean, obviously Willow is a very good one. We work, we, we will be bringing out our first pieces in Willow next year. And that's very exciting because unlike rattan or bamboo, which do have to come from a tropical country because they don't grow here, Willow does. So there's huge potential there, but all sorts of other um, metals um, and plasters. So, that's the really fun bit, um, the sourcing of those materials and um, most crucially, the, the craftspeople who are best at using them. Hence these trips around places like Scotland at the moment. <laughs> well, it, it, it's very exciting. I didn't even fully appreciate the, the whole research and development side of the, of the business. I, now I imagine you with a, with a white lab coat on and, uh, and, and experimenting. Okay, I need to let you go. This has gone on for far too long. You've been so kind to make the time, and it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Dennis, thank you very much. It's a pleasure as always. And I can promise you, you'll never see me in a lab coat. <laughs> I, I really like that image. I don't know. I see you with beakers and a uh, Bunsen burner and the lab coat uh, doing, doing R&D. It's a hostile environment I... for a whippet. In which case, I'm afraid <laughs> it has no place for me. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Sculling. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.